from the Apostrophe Podcast Network. You know, it used to be that all kinds of companies would sponsor entertainment such as TV and radio shows. And it would seem that those days are back. The result of this, where a certain brand teams up with a certain artist or creator, is that in my case, and appropriately so, my greatest supporter and the reason why I can even bring this podcast to you is due to the patronage and support of Aggressor Adventures, who have mastered the art of adventure vacations for more than 38 years. Choose Aggressor and choose your adventure. Your surviving life with Les Stroud. Calling all musicians. If you're a musician, professional or amateur, this interview is for you. In fact, it's a two-parter, and both parts are for you. Through sheer persistence, and probably a lot of hubris, I have been fortunate enough to find myself in the studio or on stage with some of the best musicians in the world. Dave Rosenthal, who had been working with me on my Mother Earth album and stage show, is at the top of that list. Now going strong into his 28th year as keyboardist and musical director for none other than Billy Joel, Dave is, and will always be, a pure musician. There has never been something for Dave to be, to aspire to. He's a musician. That's it. That kind of focus, combined with no small amount of talent, has seen him on stage and in the studios with everyone from Paul McCartney to Ishtak Perlman. His main credits are Billy Joel, Cyndi Lauper, Robert Palmer, Enrique Iglesias, Richie Blackmore, Rainbow, and Steve Vai. His life in rock and roll is filled with the stories that so many of us, musicians, envy. Dave is in the full meaning of the phrase, a musician's musician. Chatting with Dave gave me an opportunity to ask him about a genre of music that will always hold a special place in my own musical heart, progressive rock. To set the stage, I met with Dave in Beacon, New York, in a roadside park where we sat out of the heat of the day in the shade of a big tree, just before going for dinner at the Roundhouse. These are the words of Dave Rosenthal. I'm, I'm not one of those snobby type of people that, 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 that oh, it's not perfectly in tune. It has to be, no, it's, yeah, I like things in tune like everybody else does, but I, I can also enjoy an, an imperfectly performed thing because it ha- if it has a vibe about it, it there's something about rock and roll and i get that it is its own thing so i don't let that get in my way because i, I love music too much or I, and i love rock and roll too much to not play it for that reason or not listen to it for that reason it's silly roger glover was running the the uh, audition he was a bass player in deep purple and of course in rainbow as well and uh he came up to me at one point and he said Okay, so now let's say we're on stage in front of 20,000 people and Richie Blackmore, Richie just broke a string and uh, you have to fill space, go. I don't know, I was about, uh, I don't know why, about six years old and asked my parents for piano. They didn't have one. And I have no idea why. You don't remember what you listened to? Or? I just wanted to play piano. No idea why. And kept asking. They didn't have a piano. 
Piano is very expensive. Where is this? I grew up in uh, um, Edison, New Jersey. And uh, so, uh, okay, you know, whatever. You know, I understand that, okay. So I started saving my allowance, which was 25 cents a week. I saved for eight weeks, put together two bucks, and went back to them and said, you know, will this help? And that's when they realized, we, we, we got to get this kid a piano. <laughs> this is actually what happens. It's kind of a corny story, but that's just, oh, that's good. it's actually what happened. They, they, they went to they bought the piano. And they bought, they wrote the check two dollars short, and I handed the guy my quarter. So, I, you know, really, yeah. okay. So, so I really wanted to play, and I didn't know why. I just wanted to play piano. So, uh, we'll, we'll speak to the relationship with your mom and dad, though, because that sounds pretty special. Uh, you know, I don't know. My mom, my mom's creative. She's a painter, not professional. She does oil painting. She was, she was really, really amazing, but never planned to have a career out of it. She just, just did it. But some of her paintings, especially in her earlier years, were really, really amazing. She was very good. My dad didn't have any musical talent at all, so I really don't know where it came from exactly. Uh, or, or, or why. Uh, I often say, um, I didn't choose music, music chose me. This is, this is who I am, it's, it's in my blood, it's, it's what I am. It's, it's, it's not like I set out to be something. No, this is, this is just, this is who I am, this is what I am, it's, so it's just part of me. There's a fascination for me in people who can be one-tracked minded, I'm not. You know, in, in my bad days, I'm eight things at the same time. In mm -hmm. my good days, I'm two things. Rarely am I one thing, but you sound like you were more you're more one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just laser focused. And again, I don't know why. That's all I wanted to do. So I started playing and, you know, teacher was giving me lessons and he went to, told my parents that I was learning extraordinarily fast. I don't have any bearing. I'm just uh, doing what I do. He'll learn this. Okay, fine. You know, whatever. And then when I was nine, that, that's when uh, the piano tuner came and uh, was tuning the piano. And I was fascinated by what he was doing. And I was just watching him because I was curious, you know, nine year old kid. And then at the end of it, you know, he said, hey, kid, just for, just curious, go sit down and, and just turn, turn your head. What note is this? And I said, it's an A. And he goes, what? And, and he goes, what note is this? Says, it's a G. I was like, and he goes, well, you have perfect pitch. And I was like, well, what's the big deal? You asked me what note it was, and I told you. I, I don't know. <laughs> so he made a big deal out of that. And, uh, but to me, it was, it was nothing because it's, I really didn't think anything of it. He asked me what note it was, and I told him. <laughs> it's just, it was so obvious. I'm going to ask you a weird question. Mm -hmm. But because... It's like when you hear people, what is it called, synesthesia? Synesthesia, when you see colors when, from music. Right. Yeah. Is that you? I don't have that. No, but you have perfect pitch. Yeah. What's that feel like? To describe, I, I could not tell you what perfect pitch is. I mean, I've, I've got decent pitch, some would say, you have some would argue. No, you have excellent ears. No, but no you really do. What's perfect pitch? Like? Well, basically, well, I don't know because I can't tell you what it's like because I never didn't have it. You know, so it's, it's, it's part of me, but, but uh, really all it is is, it's like a, a photographic memory for pitch. So in other words, when I was learning how to play piano, I was taught what the notes are, and then I played them, and I just, I have the sound of that note permanently, like indelibly inscribed in my brain, such that if I ever hear an A, oh, it's an A, because it's like, that's what that is. Much the same as, an, and, and the, the analogy that you used about color is interesting, because people use that to just try to explain what it is. The similarity is basically, when you were a kid, somebody said, this is blue, and this is red. And now, whenever you see that color again, you recognize it, and you go, oh, that's blue, and that's red. That's the, the same thing. It's, it's somebody told me, this is an A, that's a G, this is a D, this is an E flat. And okay, so when I hear it again, I, I just immediately recognize, oh, that's what that is. I never didn't have it, like I said. So, you know, it's a fascinating to me. I, I, I work with so many great musicians, amazing musicians who don't have perfect pitch. And it's, it, it blows me away how they hear because it's just a different way of, of processing it, you know. And, and uh, so I hear notes exactly as the note is. 
And then I learned later in my schooling how to hear relatively, which is the way other people hear. So, and who's to say what's better or worse? I don't know. I, I, like I said, it's, I learned, how, I, I learned in, intentionally how to hear without using that because it just it made my ears even that much better by more of an understanding. You've actually gone down an interesting road with that. Let's stick with that for a second because it, there's some fascination there. Have you found ever that perfect pitch is, is it always a benefit to you or has it sometimes gotten in the way if you're dealing with tremendous musicians who don't have perfect pitch? Like, What's that like once you're, once you're in it? 99% of the time, it's a benefit. But the, the time when it's not a benefit is uh, sometimes people want to play something in a different key. Now, I have to play it in that other key, whereas somebody who doesn't have perfect pitch can just hit the transpose button, which is the equivalent of using a capo and a guitar or whatever, and they could just start playing it in the other key, whereas I actually have to work it out and figure out what, what they are because I can't, if, if I'm playing a pitch different from what I'm hearing, my hand will go to the wrong place, and I'll make mistakes. So because of that, I don't, I don't play well with transpose buttons. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. You actually have to yeah. musically transpose it. I have to musically transpose it, yeah. yeah. Oh, and many people are just, it doesn't bother them at all. That's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, that's when it's a curse. But most of the time, it's very, very helpful, I find. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. I remember there's a, a guitar player that's passed away who's famous up in Canada named Jeff Healy. Mm -hmm. uh, wonderful, amazing guitar player. He had perfect pitch. Oh, really? So much blind, so that too, it, right, wasn't he? And blind, yeah. yeah. And in high school, he was the kid who would call down to the saxophone player three rows down and over on the other side of the room, the violin or something, you're a little flat on your B string, <laughs> sort of things. Like, how in the heck does he hear that? And that's why I wondered if, it, if it's ever grating to you. Well, you know what? It, it, I, I also had to learn how to turn it off because I love rock and roll. And, and <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting comment. <laughs> yeah, I can't no, do perfect pitch. It's rock and roll. Well, not all rock and roll is perfect. And I love that about it. I, I still I have rock and roll running through my veins and it's part of me as much as music is. I'm, I'm not one of those snobby type of people that, that, that oh, it's not perfectly in tune. It has to be, no, it's, yeah, I like things in tune like everybody else does, but I, I can also enjoy an, an imperfectly performed thing because it ha if it has a vibe about it, it, there's something about rock and roll and I get that. It is its own thing. So I don't let that get in my way um, because I, I love music too much or I, and I love rock and roll too much to not play it for that reason or not listen to it for that reason. It's silly. I'd like to find out how you got led into progressive rock. So starting at nine, what, what, how did you start first training? Well, I was, my first training, my teachers wanted me to play classical music and I absolutely refused. I was dead set against it. I only wanted to play what was on the radio. By the time I was maybe 10 or 11, I was able to, I knew all my chords, I could sight read any sheet music, I could solo over things, I can play whatever was on, you know, I, I was, but I, then what happened is I kind of hit a plateau, and I kind of, my teacher actually went to my parents and said, you know, he's been great, but I have no more to teach him, I, he needs somebody more advanced, and then I took a little bit of time off, and then when I went back to it, I got really serious, and then I fell in love with classical music, but I went to it on my own, and that's when I started elevating my knowledge of music and starting to really build my chops and, and, and learning that. And, um, you know, I love rock and roll, but then I discovered progressive rock as well with Yes and... Uh, Genesis, and, and, Pink Floyd, Palmer, all that stuff, yeah. yeah. And then I was fascinated with that and wanted to learn that. And then the process of studying Rick Wakeman's riffs and, uh, and listening to Keith Emerson's piano bits, and I used to learn that. And that, that in itself is, is an education for a young musician coming up. So how old are you at this point? discovering Rick Wakeman? Probably 14 maybe, 
Yeah, my, I mean, Close to the Edge was my f second album. The first one I had was Uriah Heep Live. Uh, it was my first album that I owned. Both of those, the art's done by Roger Dean. Correct. Doing the art for, yes. those, for both of those albums. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, so, that, so that's, and then I just got into it. And, and I was also starting to hear synthesizers somewhat in that. But just rewinding a teeny bit, I was exposed to synths right before that. And I, I went to a, a, a music camp in um, Glassboro State College. It was a summer music camp. And I got to take college-level music courses as, as a kid, like kind of to, to decide if, you, if this is really for you or not, like how will you do with total immersion of, of, of this. And, of course, I, I, I ate it up. I lived, eat, breathe, sleep music, and it was, it was, I loved it. But I had an electronic music course, and there I was exposed for the first time ever to Tomita. Tomita is a Japanese synthesist who uh, did all classical music on uh, synthesizers uh, one note at a time because he had a big modular synth with all the patch cables and everything like that and not switched on Bach though because this that was the one that was super famous because that was that was a little more I guess accessible because it was very sim simplistic but he did these massive orchestral pieces he did Firebird Suite by Stravinsky pictures at an exhibition the planets by Holtz and just literally did it one note at a time and did sound getting chills telling you about it because still to this day he came up with sounds that I can listen to it today and it's just it just blows me away that sonically not only the sounds that he was getting from the synthesizers but his audio recording and he has things that are you know you listen to it with headphones and things are going around and going over the back of your head and going and this is in 1973 he was making records like this before anybody had any idea how to do this and he was doing it and you could listen to it today a modern day recording engineer would listen to that and go wow you know what's going on there and it was done in the 70s i heard that and that was the first time that my whole brain just lit up and I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I was blown away by it. And they had a Moog modular there with the patch cables and I got my first chance to actually try it and learn just the very basics of how to set up a sound. And I was just, I was totally enamored. And that was it. Synthesizers are, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And, uh, and then I started to, at the same time, discover, oh, wait, Rick Wakeman's using synthesizers and, and Ken Hensley's using synthesizers and Keith Emerson, but they're doing in a rock and roll here we are. This is the culmination of everything. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's when I got bit by that bug. So what's your definition of progressive rock? Do you think? I would say progressive rock as a genre tends to be more experimental. You have more of, uh, you know, in rock and roll, music is more, somewhat more horizontal. Like you have the chord structure and people are all playing the same chords and there might be different variations of it. But it's kind of going like this. Whereas progressive rock, like classical, the music is all sort of linear, and the harmonies are created as a result of the linear motion, if you will, which is what I love about classical music and orchestral and writing for strings and all that. It all, it all has that, and they were using that in that. And a lot, of, a lot of times odd meters, too. Not always, but sometimes odd meters. But a lot of rock and roll has that fused together with it. Uh, so you might have a rock song, a pop song, and then it has maybe a bridge or an instrumental section where it gets a little bit adventurous musically and then kind of comes back. And, you know, I love the, co the combination of the two. Did that happen, though, before the late 60s, or was rock and roll trying to think, I hear what you're saying, I'm trying to think of an example of rock and roll in 1957 or 1963 that did that, and I, I, I still, my, my brain... It was I'm, a little bit later than that, I think, when it's, people started taking more chances and breaking the boundaries of, of where rock and roll started. And, and, of course, in the 60s, and then certainly well, well into the 70s, just being different could make you popular. 
So people were finding different ways to do things and coming up with new sounds and new styles and a new take on this. And that alone, the, the charts in those days, I, I think the pop charts were very diverse with all different types of things. And being unique and being different could make you popular. And sadly, that, that, that's really not the case these days. You know, now have, everything has to be more formulaic. When did you find an opening? How? into that world well so uh, at 17 i was getting i was graduating high school and and then i went to berkeley college of music and uh so i mean i'm you know we mentioned before about the parents thing that my parents they supported me with music but did not want me to have a career of it and you know they really didn't because they were they were nervous that there's no stability and all the things that are true <laughs> well, how, how does that manifest at the family dinner table that, that disagreement it, it, it didn't really wasn't really discussed a whole lot it was just it's just to me there was never any question of whether I was going to be a musician I was one I am a musician I'm not going to become a musician I'm not going to go do this I'm doing it now fast forward looking back into into the rearview mirror thank God I figured out how to make a living at it because this is this is what I do so it, it worked out okay but but I understand now especially as an adult where they were coming from at the time uh, they did not want me to have a career of it they wanted me to go to a conventional school maybe a, you know continue my music lessons or whatever but I really had no interest in that so they they decided rather than me not go to college at all they would take the chance in their mind of throwing their money away and send me to music school, you know. But of course, uh, you know, I was an average student in high school because I wasn't interested in it. All I wanted to do was music. And then I went to Berklee College of Music and I got straight A's and all of a sudden it was a different, it was this, this is what I needed to do. Yeah, so anyway, that's where I was exposed to a lot of, a lot more sophisticated types of music and I got into you know, like, you know, Chick Corea and Return to Forever and, and Jazz and I eventually discovered Happy the Man, which was, uh, that's how I, I got involved with that. And, and, and as I'm learning in the classroom, I'm also learning from, from, from listening and transcribing these records and I always loved the Happy the Man, but they had recently broken up, they were already done and it was like my favorite couple of albums uh, you know ever still to this day how about how about uh, the, the philip glasses brian enos robert fripps any of those a little bit the, the more esoteric stuff didn't appeal to me as much i appreciated it but I, I i tended to prefer a little more tangible things um and what i liked about happy the man was that they had this everything was very melodic always the, you know the melody is the most important thing the melody might go places where you're not going to expect it to go but it was always a, a, a tangible melody. And the way they used odd meters was always there was a flow. Nothing was herky-jerky. You know, they would play in, 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 in like 11, but it would have a groove. It would have a pocket. And it, and, it, and it just felt so natural. And that's what appealed to me about that. It didn't sound like a beat was missing. It sounded like it was supposed to be that way. Just for the sake of any non-musician listening, yeah. when you say quickly, I know what you mean when you say when you're yeah. playing in 11. Uh, Tell me what that means if I didn't know music at all. Right, so typically with most music, you have four beats to the measure. Two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But you could actually have one, two, three, four, five, one, and now you're in five, you know, or, or and, and likewise, you can count eighth notes and it would be faster, and, uh, and, and you, you can have an odd meter, which means not four or not six or not eight, you know, but, but an odd one, seven, nine, 11, and, and that's how many beats are in the measure. What do you think that does to the listeners ear when when a band is playing in an 11 or in, in, an, in an odd numbered well the average listener doesn't cadence. doesn't know this and that's fine it still can sound sound great but a lot of music that's done in those odd time signatures sounds like there's a beat missing and that that has less appeal to me when it sounds natural in that feel and comfortable the band is so comfortable playing and it's so flowing then the the casual listener may go i really like this 
they have no idea that it's in an odd meter because it sounds natural. It sounds comfortable. It feels comfortable. I've it's, heard that a lot of, you know, yeah. Rush gets held up as one of those bands that is able to jump between meters Perfect analogy. Perfect analogy. And when they're playing in an odd meter, people are still banging their heads to it and they're loving it because it's cool and it, and it feels comfortable. That's why. And, and, that's, and that's the difference, yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, so I fell in love with this band and wanted to be in the band and I wrote music wishing I could someday be in this band. And then fast forward in 1999, uh, they, they wanted to do a reunion and the original keyboard player, Kit Watkins, didn't want to do it. And I had become friendly with the guys over the years. And I was like, I'm your guy. <laughs> Look no further. And uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I knew all the music and I had I, I'd written some, some material. The lead track on the album that I ended up doing with them is a song that I wrote like 90% of it when I was at Berkeley, wishing that I would someday be in the band. And then I played that for them and they're like, that's great. <laughs> so they, they loved it. And it opens the record. It's called Contemporary Insanity. And uh, I, got, I got to make a record with my favorite band of all yeah. time, which is pretty, pretty lucky. It was, it was really We're- fortunate. If you're enjoying this podcast, get ready for and check out part two of my interview with Dave, or check out my engaging and multi-part interview with producer Mike Klink. Well, decidedly not formulaic, from the Happy the Man album, The Muse Awakens, this is a song David wrote called Contemporary Insanity.
You know what? Aggressor Adventures, while being the largest liveaboard dive operation in the world, is so much more. They have safaris and excursions to the corners of the globe, exciting opportunities to see vast archaeology, history, and natural wonders. I've been traveling and diving with them for years, and I cannot endorse them enough for being simply the best there is at making sure your worldwide adventure is a safe, comfortable, and exciting one. Take it from a guy who has done a lot of adventuring. Who do I travel with on my vacations? Aggressor Adventures. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. How many years did it take between you discovering them and you and you stepping? It's Twenty on stage years later. Twenty years later. Yeah. But in the in, in the context of life, that's blank. True. You know. Yeah. And so, I mean, that just feels like it had to happen. I, well, looking back on it now, but I mean, who could have imagined at that time when I was immersed in it that they would someday a want to do a reunion, b the original keyboard player wouldn't want to do it, and c that I would actually know who they were because when I was listening to them at that time, I didn't know them at all as people. As I, I had no, they were they were just names on an album to me. So was that the opening up of your career professionally? Oh, not at all. No, no, no. I had already uh, the first big gig was Rainbow. So that's that. That was my first sort of chance to my my break, so to speak. This is the yeah. long hair days. This is yes, yes, the rock helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so how did Rainbow? How did Rainbow come? So uh, I was still at Berkeley. Actually, I was just finishing up, and a friend friend of mine knew a friend of Richie Blackmore's, and uh, I heard that they were looking for a keyboard player, and uh, he told me about it, and I sent a, sent him a tape. This showing my age, but that's what I had was a cassette tape. And I knew that Richie uh, was into classical music, so one side of the tape was me, was my senior senior recital, which I had actually done in my sophomore year, because I went through through all the proficiencies and I played all this crazy classical pianist lists and all all kind of crazy stuff. So I sent that was on one side, and the other side was my cover band at the time that we were doing like Kansas and and some Yes and some some progressive stuff, some rock and roll stuff, and and uh, they got got that tape to Richie Blackmore and and he liked it and invited me down to audition. So then I, I went down, I brought you know my my only keyboards I had. I didn't have any money. I had a Farfisa organ and my one synthesizer and, uh, and a Fender Rose. That was all I had. But I brought that with me and uh, did my homework, learned a few songs, and went down. It was a cattle call. And uh, they narrowed it down to me and one other guy and then gave me a call back. And um, so uh, when they narrowed it down, now when I got there, they said to me, I said, I brought my keyboards. I said, no, no, no we, we, you don't need that. We, we, we have stuff for, here for you to play. And they had a Hammond and a Minimoog and a Clavinet and all these things that I had read about. I'd never actually played these, uh, but I knew kind of conceptually how they all worked. And uh, so, okay, you know, whatever. So I just went up there and started playing. And, uh, and then when I got the call back the next day, I thought, you know, what can I do? How can I get the edge over the other guy that I got to beat out? So I called every Sam Ash on Long Island and found one that had a mini Moog on the floor. And I went there. Uh, the other guy went for three hours in the afternoon and I had the evening slot. So I had all afternoon and I sat there, put on a pair of headphones and started working up some sounds. And when I came back the next night for my callback, I was actually better in getting up, dialing up sounds on the mini Moog and, and doing stuff. And uh, uh, so that was a big part of it. And the other thing that, that and I found this out a year later or two years later, Roger Glover was running the, the uh, audition. He was a bass player in Deep Purple and of course in Rainbow as well. And uh, he came up to me at one point and he said, okay, so now let's say we're on stage in front of 20,000 people and Richie Blackmore, Richie just broke a string, uh, you have to fill space, go. All right, all right. I played something on the Hammond, I did a thing, I played a little solo on the synth, did something funky on the clavinet or whatever. I didn't, really didn't think anything of it, but later he told me that they asked that question of everybody. 
And he said I was the only guy who just started playing. And I couldn't believe that. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, everybody had a story. Oh, don't worry, I'll be prepared for that, or I'll work something up, or if that happened, whatever. And I, I, all they cared about is if I was fearless. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that was, what, that was one of the big things that got me the gig, because he told me to just play something and fill space, and I did. <laughs> well, I mean, it meant that you had that confidence. And, and you know what? Frankly, it meant you had craft. And it's, it's interesting, you know, in my world in, in filmmaking, uh, or as well in, in, in music as well, uh, and I'm a little more guilty of it in music, but working with, and talking with young guys, you know, today and, and girls, filmmakers, I just start to stress like, look, don't forget that thing called craft. You can't just pick up a camera and be a filmmaker. There's a, there's a true craft behind this. And you had craft, you know, and if you didn't have craft, if you were a showman, and could do some little flippy flippy things with the keyboard and you could run some quick scales, that's mm -hmm. not craft. Right. There's a difference. Right, you know? absolutely. And that craft gave, gives you the confidence, I think, to be able to say, okay, he wants me to jam on my own, by myself, in front of all of them, okay. By the way, you know who else does that? Is Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil, in every rehearsal, they are incredibly practiced at, everything's just shut down, you're the only one on stage. You've got to Make entertain work, people right? for three minutes, go. And that's without music. But it's the same. It's the same concept. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters how you yeah. do it. Yeah. I'll tell you a story. I was playing with guys you know uh, at a gig, and uh, it, it was a casino gig. It was the worst of all casino gigs. It was in Wisconsin, in the up in north and reservation. It was so sad, so so sad. It was just chain smoke. People with lit. It was the literally seniors with pushing their, their, their intravenous with cigarettes hanging out of their mouth, you know, going to the gamble. And they came in, I was playing there, right? Anyway, halfway through the show, a little tiny crowd watching us, the power went out. But it's that same thing, you know, I, I just, it happened to be during Peter Cleish and I, and you know Peter Cleish, we were playing Big Yellow Taxi, we were beginning it, and it was so, we happened to be on two acoustic instruments. So when the power went out, I said, come on, Pete, and we just went to the front of the stage, sat down on our bums, and continued playing the song. And lo and behold, by the end of the song, the power came back on. So my full rock band was back in business. Kicked back in. So we got lucky there, but you have to, you know, I'll, I'll go one step further. I remember playing in a David Bowie clone band. We had the same, the same sort of situation. I think what it was, the keyboard player forgot. He forgot something, he forgot to detune, he forgot to do something. And he had a panic attack and freaked out on stage and he was smashing the keyboard with his fists. And, I, and I'm just like, guys, just launch into anything. Jam, just jam. They couldn't jam. And it was the, the mid-80s. It was the era of Duran Duran. And uh, they were all more into that than being mm -hmm. the David Bowie clone band we were supposed to be. And when we had trouble on stage, they didn't know how to just jam. You've seen a real crossover era happen in music. Mm -hmm. You're now still playing steady on the professional level that is the top of pop and rock and, and very many multi-genred music. And yet you started back in an era where everybody had to play live and play well. I'm sure Billy demands an incredible amount from your, your, all, of your, all of you and the, the other players, the rest of the band, in terms of your live chops. What have you seen change musically over the years on that? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of acts use playback. Uh, you know, Billy is all about live, 
everything is live. And it's great because if we make a mistake, it's real. And he even jokes about it to the audience and he goes, at least you know we're not on tape. <laughs> you know, but it's really, we're really up there playing. And he has this way of bringing, making everybody feel like he's playing piano to them in his living room. And, you know, he can take 20,000, 40,000 seat giant stadium and make it and make it feel like you're in his living room. And people sense that the, pretty early on, whether they're conscious of it or not, but they sense that we're really up there doing this. And that, you know, there, there is, the, yes, we have a set list, but we might go here. We might play a piece of this. We might play some of this. We might do this. We might try something we've never done before. It's really, it's a whole lot of fun. And the audience picks up on that. And it makes, it makes something really uh, unique about, about his shows. When we come back in part two of my interview with Dave Rosenthal, we will go there to the stages of the world, playing with such massive names as Itzhak Perlman and Paul McCartney. This podcast is, as the saying used to go, brought to you by Aggressor Adventures. Choose your adventure. Surviving Life with Les Stroud is presented by the Apostrophe Podcast Network and is mixed by Keith Ullman. You're surviving life with me, Les Stroud. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, as I have hundreds of videos there and more going up every week. From Survivor Man Archive to Bigfoot to Wild Harvesting Tips to Urban Disaster Survival— It's all there, and it's all free. My brand new series, Wild Harvest, featuring local foraging and turning those wild edibles into sumptuous dishes, is now on National Geographic Asia, PBS stations in the United States, and Cottage Life Television in Canada. The brand new special, Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud, is now on a PBS station near you in the United States, or on my YouTube channel. And my brand new children's book, Wild Outside, written for your kids, It's all about getting your kids into the out-of-doors. And it's out now. Google it. I'm an easy find on Google. For those and so much more that I produce during any given year, no matter what's happening on the world stage, we'll figure this life out. Together. Cue that ripping harmonica solo, Keith. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.